Ohio Police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, and my guest today is a return guest, Sariti Kishari. Is that close? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. It's a pleasure being on the show. Yeah. It's so wonderful having you again. The last time we talked, you were working on or producer of Food Chains, and we talked to Sanjay and a lot of people. But this time, we're talking to Sariti Kishari as the creator of The Bomb. That's right, the bomb. Uh, <laughs> it is, of course, the film version as opposed to the real thing that has been uh, has changed uh, the world. Uh, let's say it's fair to say. And uh, we're talking now about the bomb, even though I have uh, spoken to uh, Eric Slosser and uh, Kevin Ford, who who directed the film. You were closing the bomb was closing the closing event of the 2016 Tribeca Film Festival. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So we were in New York last year in full 360, and we were at the Berlinale earlier this year as the uh, we played on opening night of the Berlin Film Festival. Yes. And I'm just coming back. I think it took some time to recover from, from Glastonbury Festival. So we had the pleasure of having the full 360 again with the band at, at Glastonbury. We're going to, because you and I know what you're talking about, but we're going to have to explain, uh, you know, from New York, uh, first to Tribeca, then Berlin, and and now, uh, a, what do they call, a jaw-dropping showcase of the bomb at the 2017 uh, Glastonbury Festival. The big news today uh, is that it, you are now on Netflix. I just watched it again uh, a couple of nights ago, as of August 1st. But first, you keep throwing out that magic number, 360. We better explain one of the things that makes the bomb, uh, and and just one of the things, but it makes the bomb uh, a unique product, a, a unique statement about something that is in itself unique for a very different reason. Tell us, what do you mean, 360? Sure. So the bomb is, is a lot of 
still home of a music experience uh, about nuclear weapons. It puts people in the center of the story of nuclear weapons. And it, it exists in the film world, it exists in the music world, and it kind of exists also in the art world. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting. That's why we sort of are, are exist in so many different ways. Um, it was originally created and, and um, you know, by Eric Slosher and I to be a live 360-degree film. So what that means is that the film actually plays all around the audience. Yes. In New York, we built uh, a giant um, 30-foot-high screens that surrounded the audience while the electronica rock group, the Acid, whose music has so much magnitude and, and tension and release. And they're just, I think, one of the best rock bands of our time. Mm. Um, they did the live score, and they play in the center. Um, and in 360, we're showing the film. So the film's actually happening all around you. Mm-hmm. Um, in Berlin, we had the film as a single screen experience. It was in one screen, and then the band played the live score. Mm-hmm. And now the film, as a you know, as a traditional film, exists on on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And the film is really unique, I would say, you know, because it. The closest that it has been compared to is Kruger and Viscotti, which was, which had a live score by Philip Glass, and um, or an Adam Curtis film, mm-hmm. um, because it takes people it, it it takes people through the through the reality of nuclear weapons, through the emotions of nuclear weapons. It's not didactic in any way. There mm-hmm. is no narrator telling mm-hmm. you. Um, it just takes you through. The, the raw power of a machine to their to their emotional pull to the perversion of science to the seduction of the machine and takes people through this emotional journey that I think is quite intense and especially in this time where everywhere you go people are telling you to like this do that it, this is more of a of a visceral and meditative piece on on this reality. And, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I've seen the film, of course, t- uh, talked with the, uh, the guys about this film before, and the whole concept, but seeing the film, even on Netflix, was just as impressive, because one of the things I often tell actors, you know, m- movies are about pictures. Uh, we need the visual to tell the story. But you've gone, even as a... Uh, you've created it even as a theater piece because with mm-hmm. the, as you say, the, the audience is standing in the middle of the bomb, quite literally. Yeah. That's how to experience it because I think the impression I have gotten for, for years and certainly from watching uh, and, and prepping for today's show, the bomb, the atomic bomb, which has been dropped only by one country, us, uh, twice, has been sort of forgotten. Um, you know, they're out there, and and what has brought it back to the front page, perhaps, is North Korea. Couldn't be more timely to have you guys on Netflix so more people can see what's the truth about... We, we worry about robots and machines taking over the world. Well, the bomb is the biggest machine there is. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's important to to recognize that half of the population in the U.S. right now are either small children or or not born yet mm. during the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So they don't have the same sort of emotional weight that that nuclear cloud that existed during that time during the arms race mm-hmm. uh, during the sense that with the four four minute warning the world likely could end or that. You needed to protect yourself by ducking and covering or having air raid shelters. And there is a really strong sense that the that the nuclear that the atomic bomb was quite real and quite you know above you is this looming dark force and and that reality has been completely forgotten. Mm. I think a lot of it is because these weapons are buried, you know, underground or underwater. And people don't see them, and so it's a out of sight, out of consciousness. Yes, yes. Um, 
But, you know, not only do we live in a world where there are 15,000 nuclear weapons, there are millions of countries that have them. And as you can see, um, you know, through Eric Flosher's book, Command and Control, there's an entire system set in place Mm -hmm. that controls these weapons. And this system is aging. Uh, We face threats of nuclear terrorism. And it's something that it's the younger generation needs to have that same connection. And so in that sense, the bomb was created in such a unique way of, of incorporating music and art because it's been such a strong part of the civil society's involvement with the subject. Mm. One fact that I love is that the peace movement actually came out of an anti-nuclear movement. Yes. The symbol for peace, you know, the circle with the lines that almost looks like two two legs. Yes. That actually is semigraph symbol, the flag symbol for N and D, uh, which starts for nuclear disarmament. So the designer who created that, British designer, created it inspired by the anti-nuclear movement. Mm. Well, it you know, it is a story that is still with us. And of course, as I mentioned with uh, uh, North Korea um, and its actions, and for that matter, on the positive side, I suppose, response from the United Nations um, unanimously, Security Council hardly is ever unanimous about anything. That is a step in the correct direction, but it doesn't really, it's it's like the old cliche, we deal with, we, we, we're responding to the symptoms as opposed to the real issue, the real, the disease, and that is the bomb itself. Tell us a little, just to lighten up just a moment, um, a little technical thing. that Glastonbury, uh, how, what did they do uh, to accommodate the bomb? Sure. So at Glastonbury, it was really an honor. Um, the festival had us um, as the kind of the of Shangri-La, uh, which is the after-hours um, special of the festival. The, the roots of the festival actually came out of a CMD movement, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in England. So they were quite excited to tie it back to an issue that's very near and dear to the festival organizers. So with our incredible creative team, um, Stanley Donwood, our artistic director, who's mm-hmm. also been working for with Glastonbury for years and years, um, creating artwork. And the acid and Eric and I, we were all there to bring the bomb back in a wide open sky. So it was the first time it was completely outside, mm. um, full 360, and the film played. And I think what was perhaps jaw-dropping for the festival organizers themselves is that the, at this time, at that festival, as you can imagine, everyone might be slightly under, uh, you know, certain, uh, they might be drinking, let's say. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> they might be dancing or raving, and everyone was sitting down. People sat down, and they said that in the history of Glastonbury at Shangri-La, that has never happened. Well, well. They just sort of sat down and let the experience take over. And there's something about the shared experience of it that mm-hmm. is quite different. And, and I do think that, you know, whether in each way that people experience it, and this is something we've heard again and again, is that it is quite different. And it's been interesting because as we take it around the world and in different places, um, it's been it's been powerful. Um, mm-hmm. I think in in every different way, uh, nothing quite like it has been done before. Combining mm-hmm. these elements and not sort of existing just in one world, mm-hmm. not being just a film uh, with an extension. I mean, it was really thought of first as a live installation. Mm-hmm. So that's been you know that was exciting for us. We're excited that uh, Netflix picked it up and is now available on Netflix uh, to be seen around the world. Excellent. Uh, tell us now how it started. I know you alluded to uh, Eric Schlosser's uh, book, and then he, did he get Kevin involved in making a short story, if I recall, a, a short film, and then you came up with this bombastic uh, <laughs> 360 <laughs> idea? By the way, are so much fun. Yes. <laughs> never gets old, and there's so much. Yes. 
So take us take us through the uh, you know from the from the initial idea and how it be yeah. how it became what it is. Certainly. So Eric came out with the book Command and Control um, in two thousand and four thirteen thirteen, and that um, left a really um, deep impact with me. It, it made me both quite, um, I think, sad and angry. Um, mm. Sad because I couldn't believe this reality that we live in. Mm. In, in the world, there are 15,000 what, what nine countries that have them, with Congress and the U.S. approving a just modernized nuclear weapon. And I was angry because I couldn't believe that I knew nothing about it, that I didn't have, I mean, I might have read the headlines, um, but it didn't have that same emotional weight mm-hmm. um, that, you know, I felt when I was reading Eric's book. I just couldn't believe that we've gotten to this point. Mm-hmm. And I think you really, un- you sort of, the book reads like a thriller. And so it takes you through all of these different emotions. And there's a clear um, sense that I've always felt is that, you know, human beings cannot coexist with nuclear weapons. Uh, one will eventually destroy the other. Mm-hmm. And I think it was it was important to create an experience that allowed others to to feel it and to experience it in a way that you know the, the traditional documentaries um, or this information exists. But how do we kind of penetrate through and create a more uh, a stronger emotional connection? Mm-hmm. Uh, and for quite some time, I have been thinking about this idea of putting people inside of a film mm. of really kind of taking away all of these rules and um, and roles of what a film needs to look like, what the filmmakers hand is, what each of the roles are, and really allowing people to kind of wander um, throughout it. And not telling them, not providing them with those, like, facts and figures and talking heads, but really mm-hmm. sort of taking them through this emotional journey and, yes. and trusting yes, the audience can come away with a deeper understanding of something. Um, and when as I was reading Eric's book, it just it felt really clear that that's what, you know, the, this experience, this is the way that the experience needed to exist. Um, so I had approached Eric about it, and at the same time, you know, Eric went to school at Oxford, and he was there in Hyde Park when there was... Um, a strong anti-nuclear rally. Mm. And so the sense of a shared experience is something that, you know, I think is really strong for people who were um, young during that time. And so he had been thinking also, um, he's been with this issue now, I think, uh, about a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had been thinking similarly of having a music concert and, and getting people more, younger people more involved, engaged with the subject matter. Um, so we started discussing the project of how we, you know, how we do this. And at the same time, when the book had come out, Kevin had created book trailer mm. for Command and Control. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, we were in Los Angeles and Kevin and I met and, um, and then we just got an incredible creative team involved. We had uh, Stanley Donwood, who is the artistic director of the project, also the artistic director of Radiohead, and his graphics and illustration are so bold and and political and, mm-hmm. and so strong. And uh, and his brother, the Kingdom of Blood, who is an amazing animator, were involved. We also approached um, United Visual Artists, which I think are some of the best installation designers mm-hmm. um, that really understand how people move and the yes. live side of things. And then the band, The Acid, um, who are just such a strong band with such magnitude. And I think really together, collabor- collaboratively, we all created the bomb. Um, so it's been, it's been quite, it's been a dream team and it's been such a great effort by everyone involved. The more I, I, or I should say, every time I speak with one of the three of you and hear more about the film, The Bomb, and now, of course, uh, again, on Netflix since Tuesday, August 1st, 2017, I'm reminded um, 
of of the impact it it certainly must have and you're making the point it's a generational thing it's there it is time for everyone to be reminded because uh, people do forget as you say out of sight out of mind but we're talking about global destruction uh, can't really ever be out of mind I would like to before we go to another segment I just want to tell a quick story I wasn't I'm not quite old enough to remember as a student, duck and cover, uh, as if one could get under a school uh, desk and survive by covering your head an atomic bomb. But that's what was preached to us by the government and the military, and you know everyone was making the the bombs possible. That this was this was the defense. This could keep you safe, and people were digging uh, 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 shelters in the ground and so forth. Uh, it was quite a time. I do uh, watch a lot of documentaries, but the point I wanted to make was decades after Duck and Cover, I, I thought, was over, I, as a teacher, uh, visited a middle school, and they were having not an, um, a drill from, for an atomic bomb, but for a tornado, I believe, and they were still saying Duck and Cover, all the kids out in the hallway, Duck and Cover. And I thought it just made me think, you know, we we just... We just aren't thinking things through. Okay. Uh, any quick comment on that before we go to a break, a break Simity? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't surprise me to hear you, you know, to hear that experience. I think once um, I started, we, we really started making the bomb, and I saw it everywhere all, all around me. I was walking around my neighborhood mm-hmm. in, in Brooklyn and passing by a school, and it had a sign for there's an air raid shelter here. Mm. And so you see that it's in the, the blueprint of this country. Yes. And it was so ever-present. And, and it's time for us to kind of wake up to this reality again. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right, we're going to take a break. We are talking to filmmaker Sriti Keshari, uh, who, with Eric Slosser and Kevin Ford, have made The Bomb, which is now streaming on Netflix since August 1st, 2017. It has been literally around the world, as in the same way it surrounds its audience 360 degrees. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. The Holocaust is undeniably one of history's greatest horrors. One of many lessons to be learned is that an incomplete attempt to wipe out a learned, artistically inclined people will spawn a million powerful stories to keep the memories alive. Nowhere in Africa is one. The Redlich family lives in privilege in pre-war Germany. Fearing the rise of the Nazi party, Walter has fled to Africa, working as caretaker on a hard-scrabble Kenyan farm, preparing a place for his family to weather the storm. He soon sends for his wife, Jettel, and daughter, Regina, cautioning them that life is hard. Bring a refrigerator and leave the fine china behind. Yet they arrive with a china-packed trunk and a fine ball gown purchased en route. This is a story of growth. Walter to a pride in himself, Jettel to an understanding and appreciation of a larger world, and Regina into a young woman with a deep love for the people and culture of Africa. Based on an autobiographical novel, the story is told through Jettel's memories, conjuring extraordinarily sensitive insights into the human condition. Nowhere in Africa, not in theaters, discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. I'm talking to film creator, producer, Riti Kashari, uh, who has worked with Eric Slosser and Kevin Ford, a director, and they've created The Bomb. She gave us in the last segment the kind of scenario of, uh, you know, from from book to tr- uh, video trailer to this concept of hers of sur- well, it's more than theater in the round, that's putting it mildly. It's the audience in the center of the mechanics, if you will, the reality of the atomic bomb. 
and all accompanied by jaw-dropping music played by the Acid Band. So, with that lead in, <laughs> where do we go? Where do we go from here, uh, uh, Riti? I'd love you if you can tell us that educational uh, uh, concept you were giving us that that uh, when we in in the break. When I started looking at this at this method, um, I'm looking at a lot um, of research coming out of MIT Media Lab and School of Visual Arts, um, both looking at time perception and, and memory, mm-hmm. um, and really trying, and as well as Disney Lab um, down at Houston, and really trying to understand kind of how does something stay with someone longer? How does um, how do people understand or, or keep information? longer, how is something more entertaining? And the research was fascinating because it looked at everything from eyeball tracking movements mm-hmm. uh, and watching television to how people remember information that they might have seen in a documentary or a film. And there's a quote that I really love that I often mention that summarizes it all. And it's that monotony collapses time and novelty expands it. Gotcha. Okay. And if you think about that in the context of your own life, um, the moments of, of novelty, the moments of newness that you experience, um, that's how you remember certain years. So if I asked you, tell me about 2009, you might, you know, remember it as, oh, that's the year I went to Peru, or that's the year that there's a birth of a child, mm-hmm. or a graduation, or a promotion. Mm-hmm. And it's these moments of newness, you know, and, and you remember of like that was before or after that. Yes. <laughs> and 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 because in those moments you're having to engage more of your senses. You're having to actually make action you're, or make decisions. You're having to choose for your own self um, versus what you what one might have to do every day, mm-hmm. uh, which is maybe you drive to the same location, sit in the same, and so. Um, we wanted to create, I really wanted to create an experience that really um, made people make choices. So they didn't fall into the role of what a film viewer does, which is, you know, I have a way of sitting comfortably. I cross one leg over. Mm-hmm. And that's how I know that, okay, now I can relax. Um, and this sort of, this not knowing what to do when you're inside of the bomb, this not knowing, you know, where was I remember one time uh, to one of the showings, someone had just walked in and they said to their friend, I was near them, and they said, let's get the best seat in mm. the house. And when they walked in, they realized, wait a minute, <laughs> what is that? Yeah. You know, um, you could face the band, you could move around, you could face one of the screens, mm-hmm. and the film moved around to you as well. So there was this not knowing of what... You know, we don't have any sequences in the beginning. The film actually just starts. When someone entered the experience of the bomb, they had a film that was all around them and an band in the center. Mm. Um, but there wasn't one specific way that they could experience it. Some chose to move around. Some chose to be closer to the band. Mm. Some chose to just actually look up at the screen. And there was something in that kind of, even that collective choice or this sort of not having a role of what you're supposed to do Mm. that really increase the magnitude of the experience, I think. I think one of the reviews that we had uh, was from Newsweek, and they had said, not knowing what to do with yourself makes people more susceptible Mm. and vulnerable to the message. How are people responding? What are the the comments of the audience as they leave? Uh, what, What are you hearing besides the critics? Obviously... Critics are loving it and finding it uh, a strange, a new uh, Doctor Strange love, if you will, um, mm-hmm. uh, or you wouldn't be on Netflix. But what are do, what are some of the comments you hear from the people who are attending? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's really interesting because um, at each of the showings we've had such diverse audiences, but it's quite I think powerful when we and hear comments of a, of a younger audience also. Um, and there have been many of that as well. I mean, everything from, from to people being in tears, um, mm. 
in in New York, I think the intensity of it caused for a couple people to actually pass out. Even um, wow. it's been quite compelling. It's emotional. Um, it's quite visceral. It's I think we've gotten notes from people that it's just so powerful. The one that I found really interesting was people um, even days after just saying the film has like stayed with me and mm. in ways that like. I can't even, you know, I can't imagine and, and kind of put me on this rabbit hole of, of reading more about it. And I think that's exactly the type of response that we want. You know, we're not saying, this is the right thing, or here's a policy that you need to support. But this is kind of the first um, spark of light. It's kind of, it's igniting the, the interest and the connection to the subject matter. Well, it's in your face. It's, it's mm-hmm. look at this. Yeah. You know, um, and I and, and I respect that because it's the subject is so huge that we can't afford to ignore it, uh, regardless of where we live. It is a global issue, and for all those out there, it was the United States of America that dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, which did end the World War Two. But the devastation to those people and that country. It took decades of, of repair mm-hmm. and should be a lesson because now the, the atomic bombs of today are infinitely more powerful. And mm-hmm. um, when there are leaders, even one leader, but having two or three who think recklessly about, or, or shall I say casually, about the use of uh, nuclear weapons, it's for the people, the grassroots, the ground up, to say, no, 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 no. And the first thing is education, and that's what the bomb does. It it frightens, it educates, it entertains, it awakens. Um, it, it, its its impact is uh, immeasurable. I, um, I, I, again, the World War II, the Cuban Missile Crisis we've touched on. Now, that I am old enough to remember as a child, all the adults crying and long lines going to church and everybody... The whispering about the end of the world, and you know, I wasn't a, a, a child, but I mean, I wasn't a, I was a kid still, uh, but old okay. enough to know that something serious was going on. And I mentioned to you years later as a director, I was directing a 16 year old young lady who had an assignment to what if she had lived during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and she hadn't a clue, of course, because she was only 16. And she asked me, and I told her a longer version of what I just said to you, but World War II and then the Cuban Missile Crisis and and now where we are, I think the big lesson is that the bombs are getting better, but some of the leaders are getting less smart. Is that too strong? (laughs) It's interesting because as you mentioned before, you know, only two weapons have been, two nuclear weapons have been dropped Yes. in, in a country. And now we live in a time where the weapons um, in the U.S. arsenal are 20 times more powerful yes. than the bombs dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yes. We now have low combat missiles that, that have the same effect of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. And so, but no weapon has been used in war since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, no nuclear weapon. So we have weapons that are that much more powerful. We are talking about spending trillions of dollars to modernize nuclear weapons, and yet these aren't the weapons we would use. So what we have is actually these aging systems. Mm. We have these aging dinosaurs, if you will, mm-hmm. that are you know, that are vulnerable and susceptible to all of the threats. Uh, that you can imagine, from cybersecurity to yes. nuclear terrorism. Yes. And so we quickly, as we start talking about weapons, start getting to the countries. But it's not about the countries. It's really about the machines. Yes. And it's realizing that we, human existence, cannot coexist with these machines. Mm-hmm. You know, these machines uh, have one purpose, and then that's to kill in the millions. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't um, ever be able to drop that and not affect innocent people. Yes. And the the 
National Red Cross has come out with a statement that they would not be able to aid any nation if there was a nuclear weapon attack. Nonetheless, nuclear war, we would have famine. And so as, a, as, as countries, we are not equipped to be able to handle that. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about an aging system, you are also talking about people, designers, weapon technicians who are also aging. Yes. And so in that sense, it actually, you know, from my point of view, it actually doesn't make sense to have these weapons. Some argue that they serve the purpose of deterrent. Mm-hmm. Um, deterrent assumes that everyone's uh, operating from the same psychological, logical uh, point that they want the same thing. Mm-hmm. And some might argue that our current administration might not be, uh, be operating from that same point. Yes. Yes, exactly. I, I guess, and the sheer numbers of them, as you say, and their vulnerability. Everyone thinks, well, everything's protected because it is, after all, a nuclear bomb and it's under the ground. But it, it isn't the, the, the as you, again, you've saying the, the the entire system, the human resource, as well as the physical bomb itself, its location, its silo, uh, all of that is aging and eroding. And as we are concerned about a terrorist striking some group of people in the street, which is a horrible thing, we should be equally concerned about terrorists going after the the national grid and certainly about a nuclear facility. What, uh, how does the bomb... I mean, in, in, Eric's, in Eric's book, Command and Control, mm-hmm. the backbone of the book is um, an accident in Damascus. Yes. And it was when a, a technician dropped a wrench yes. and pierced uh, the warhead. And that is, now, if you think about how many times you accidentally knock over your coffee or mm. your water, yes. um, that's a simple accident. But unfortunately, accidents um, is not something that we can really afford mm. with nuclear weapons. Exactly. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it, it's a great threat that we face. And it, the bomb was really meant to, to create a wake-up call to it. Well, uh, it certainly has reawakened me. I um, I can't say that I have thought about atomic bombs every day of my life, but when something like this, your film here, The Bomb, uh, especially when it's now so readily accessible on Netflix, streaming Netflix since uh, August 1st, 2017, everyone really needs to see it, and young people need to see it, because I think... Um, while seniors are living longer and longer, it's the young people who are coming along who are inheriting a world that um, they had little part in creating, and yet they have to live with what they are inheriting. And uh, the, they need to they need to find out what that world is, and seeing the bomb is part of the reality of the world that they are facing. And respond. Uh, how do how do you want the young people who see the bomb to respond? What are you hoping uh, the impact will be on them? Mm-hmm. I think it's the most important thing is that they experience it, that they talk about it, um, that they ask questions, and that they inquire to learn more about it. Um, we have on our website, we have a website and it's thebombnow.com we have information and stats and more information as well as information about organizations that um, they can go to to learn more to get involved um, the first step is to tell at least one other person mm. that they've seen the film um, to to view the film together um, we've heard of a lot of people who mentioned you know last week that they had a few friends over and they all experienced it and I think the reason why that's so powerful is because it certainly leads you to question. It mm. leads you to question, you saw what you thought of it, what others thought of it. And that's the first step. So yes. we encourage everyone to watch the film on Netflix and to go to thebombnow.com to mention it in all of their social platforms using the hashtag thebombnow. Okay. 
let's um, we want to at least mention a few of uh, your sponsors. You have great support um, from uh, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation and Carnegie Corporation. There are uh, uh, institutions, corporations that are responding to the importance of this film, The Bomb. Uh, and, but let's slowly again, as we uh, need to close out now, but let's slowly remind people of where they can find you, website, Facebook, Twitter, so that they can not only see The Bomb on Netflix, but whether or not they have uh, uh, streaming Netflix, how do they get more information about both the film The Bomb and its reality that it depicts? Certainly. So people can watch the film on Netflix, on iTunes, on Amazon, on Vimeo. Um, and, and then we encourage everyone to go to our website, to thebombnow.com. And if you know anyone that would be interested in swinging the band and having a live showing, um, if you're connected to major festivals, art foundations, uh, museums, exhibitions, we certainly encourage people to to reach out to us, and you can find all of this information on the bomb now. And also use the hashtag the bomb now. And we would say that no matter who you are, whether you're a teacher, an artist, there's a way of engaging with the subject matter. We had a really powerful artist initiative where we encourage artists with strong followings uh, in social media as well as certain student artists from RISD to create artwork inspired by the subject matter. And we just got some incredible artwork. And that was such a natural way to connect with the subject matter. So whoever you are and however, we'd encourage you to watch the film and, and get involved. Excellent. I couldn't be put better. That's exactly it. Get involved. See the film, The Bomb, so you have the information. Educate yourself and your friends and family and get involved. So, Simriti Kishari, wonderful to talk to you again. And I wish you and Eric and Kevin, Eric Schlosser and Kevin Ford and The Bomb, the film, all the very best. Um, and, of course, our thanks to The, the Acid, the, the band that is so integral in this um, production, this 360 production. And as uh, Sariti has said, if you have any association with uh, film festivals or festivals of any sort, be in touch. Is that good? That sounds great. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great talking to you again. You take care, okay? And thank you for the thank film. You. Pleasure. Bye now. Bye. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. These days, action movies are defined by explosions, hot chicks, and cartoonish villains. However, as proven by Danish director Nicholas Winding Refn's masterful drive, an action movie does not have to be loud and bombastic to be effective. It can actually have an intelligent and artistic quality and still be thrilling. Ryan Gosling stars as the nameless driver, a stuntman who moonlights as a getaway driver for criminals. After meeting a new neighbor and her young son, he agrees to help her recently paroled husband rob a pawn shop to pay off a mob debt. When the robbery goes south, driver is forced to right some wrongs and protect his neighbor and himself. The film is riveting. Goslin's portrayal emanates power and confidence, and his detached demeanor suits his character's complexity. The opening sequence of the film, in which he and two burglars evade the cops on an eye-popping chase through Los Angeles, sets the character up and makes it impossible for us not to root for him. Albert Brooks's performance as Bernie Rose, a movie producer turned mobster, is another highlight. Brooks imbues the character with both wit and malice. Reffin, who won Best Director at Cannes for his efforts, and a brooding soundtrack by Cliff Martinez, have made Drive into a modern marvel. Drive, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. For all who ravenously tell the worst lie of all, 
the lie we tell ourselves. Favorably impressed by Senators Rand Paul and John Mason, cajoled by the opportunistic scallywags Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, hoodwinked by delinquents Devin Nunes and Trey Gowdy, then you are likely dangerously close to having your common sense sheared by the fork-tongued grandmaster of hypocrisy and deceit, whose every well-oiled syllable is calculated to cannibalize the citizenry's power of reason, while soiling the very mantle of statesmanship. Mitch McConnell when every Republican senator voted no to helping Americans while knowing the truth, the oft-touted superior USA education system, reliable infrastructure, and dependable power grids were myths long before COVID, but are now frigidly exposed by the corroded commitment of our chosen arrogance-filled human demitasses, led by a commander in moral bankruptcy, ranting tomfoolery sermons, waving the white supremacist flag of supreme violence when sore from losing, all while departing in the opposite direction of his directed target, anticipating celebrating in the safety of his Führer bunker among inner circle of self-deceived automatons. In lieu of the character to concede, the Putin pretender replays his ditty, the art of the deal dealing democracy decay by denying defenders under siege defenders. Proudly the vessels of fear programmed by the hateful venom of bushwhackers deteriorated democracy 20 January 2017 through 6 January 2021, contradicting the human value of workers essential to America's stability, while keeping their oath to prevent constitutional elections and medical health care personnel from keeping theirs, despite a global pandemic. These Republicans claim they're the party for small businesses, yet after forcing them to close and lose income to save lives from COVID variants, they are sacrificed within the conservative mantra of it's too expensive to care, believing our taxes are congressional private slush fund, remaining unmasked in lockstep with their current favorite son, evidently believing one day, just like a miracle, it will just disappear, the GOP averts its eyes from a half a million Americans dying alone. In callous alignment with ex-presidential hoax, Senators Graham of South Carolina, Gates of Florida, Gosser of Arizona, Brooks of Alabama, and the winner of them all, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, wipe their ill-gotten gain on our Constitution, accepting no shame for themselves. Such men dishonor their oath of office and country, for true patriots don't lie for traitors who incite scoundrels to beat Capitol Police or Asian Americans or attempt to hang a sitting vice president, or, believing black lives never mattered, protect those who randomly kill them. When conservative is now defined by our current Congress and red state legislatures attempting to limit our American privilege to vote, and further, by extremists invading our military and police forces, how in the wake of events between 3 November 2020 and 6 January 2021 are we to entrust our economy, our health care, and our children's climate change future with elected leaders unwilling to condemn violence against our constitutional law in the land of opportunity. Until we recapture our connective roots with a thriving middle class, we will not be able to scale the Rubicon separating militants believing in corporatism's financially rented might is right, and patriotic self-sacrificing Samaritans working multiple shifts as essential first responders all across America, living with the trauma and potential of losing another grocery store clerk, bank teller, tutor, doctor, nurse, significant other, veteran, teacher, student, friend, grandparent, family member, or patient. Those, whether by acclamation, consenting silence, or glazed over by redundant media, who actively or passively stand back and stand by, while the malice aforethought of proud boys and girls, QAnon and Faustian oath-keepers, heap death upon Americans, 
are accessories sharing an enormous portion of the treasonous responsibility for the misinformation, economic desperation, and anti-democracy insurrection heaped upon the innocent, courageous, and patriotic souls who understand that, one, tear-gassing a peaceful Black Lives Matter protest for a Bible photo op is not grounds for sainthood. Two, it is neither patriotic nor is there any glory in using old glory to attack Capitol Police. Three, those who deem themselves superior to any other human being for reasons of color, gender, sex, religious beliefs, or income are paranoid. Four, all who commit violence proclaiming it is an act of loving God and country are simply traitors in spirit and fact to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and America's Constitution, particularly its Bill of Rights and Fourteenth Amendment. So, let us now affirm we hold these truths to be self-evident. All of us are created equally deserving of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as long as we do not infringe on the constitutional rights of others through harassment, intimidation, or violent acts. Two, indeed the poor will always be with us, but... Our rising tide that rejects corporatism's greed and dishonest leaders will lift all our boats. And finally, each of us is blessed with talents which, once discovered and shared beyond family and self, will truly save the world from human destruction. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.